Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of American health care. And Richard, here you and I sit, early January, uh, new Congress already sworn in, new president coming in into next week. And the burning question right now is how exactly Republicans can deliver on their promise of repealing and replacing Obamacare. So th- there's obviously a lot that we can talk about here. Why don't we start with this? Uh, President-elect Trump has said that there are some parts of this law that he's okay with hanging on to. That includes the provision that allows people to stay on their parents' insurance until they're 26 and the provisions covering people who have pre-existing conditions. For you, Richard, are there provisions of the law, these or others, uh, that you'd prefer to see congressional Republicans keep in place? Well, I think those two should be kept in place, but there's complications like everything else. The uh, 26-year-old provision, I think, is relatively non-controversial. It predates this. That's generally pretty deep, uh, pretty cheap care to supply to people who are in transition. I don't think there's anybody who's in favor of repealing it. Even if it were repealed, insurance companies would probably supply some kind of variation on it. On the other hand, the provision which starts talking about coverage for pre-existing medical conditions is much more complicated than one might think. Um, everybody's in favor, not me particularly, but everybody's in favor of saying that you can't be discriminated against uh, by virtue of the fact that you have a pre-existing condition. Uh, but remember, the insurers will know this and the insurers will not. And one of the reasons why it is that the entire Obamacare bill had so much trouble in the individual exchanges was that private knowledge meant that people with high risk signed up would get their operations under their pre-existing conditions and then sign off. And when not be able to cover their costs. Uh, ironically, if you get people in their 20s who know that they have diabetes or need a major surgery and they sign on, getting people in this premium group isn't so attractive after all because these are not premium customers. So what you have to do in my view is if you're going to keep this provision is to modify it in at least some way. And the simplest way in which you could modify it is twofold. One is to say, yes, you can get coverage, but you have to wait a month before you can take advantage of that particular coverage. So you're going to have to be on a little bit longer in order to get that operation. And more importantly, you say that if you're going to do it, you have to do it in chunks. You cannot do it on an ad hoc basis. So once you're in, you're in for at least a year so that you could then have to pay something to recoup some of these expenses. Uh, there may be other provisions that you'd want to do, including those involving transfer of coverage between different kinds of employers and so forth. And so simply saying that we're going to keep the idea doesn't mean that you want to keep the problem. And I'm just going to mention a useless piece of esoterica. Uh, there are lots of things in the bill which don't have anything to do with health care. They have to do with complex drugs, biologics they're called, and it has to do with how generic companies imitate existing companies. Nobody wants to repeal that particular statute. And so what you have to do, like with every other statute, is go through a kind of exhaustive inventory and figure out what provisions stay, what provisions don't. There are some provisions which are in delay. The employer plans have not put, put into place in their normal fashion. 
solutions? Are there going to be complications there? Are there going to be real questions of how it is that you repeal and deal with insurance companies that have already received premiums for coverage that's going to lapse? This is not an easy thing. It's easier to put something in place than it is to take it in part after it's been in operation, in this case, for close to seven years. I have to follow up on that pregnant aside that you threw in there, Richard. You said everybody pretty much is in favor of retaining the um, provisions for pre-existing conditions, although not you necessarily. Explain that. Well, I mean, to my mind, all of this stuff should be a matter of contractual negotiations as between the parties. And generally speaking, when you're dealing with insurance in any other context, if somebody comes in with a known liability, you're no longer dealing with insurance, you're dealing with prepayment. And so if you want to have coverage for pre-existing conditions, you have to allow people to adjust the premiums to take into account that enhanced risk. Well, when you're doing this under Obamacare, everybody gets put into a pool and there's no individuation on rates. And so what the system has done essentially has died an ignominious death in terms of its employer individual mandate plans because of the adverse selection problem. Well, people can't go around and say, gee, adverse selection is terrible, and then say protection about pre-existing conditions is fully necessary. One is the single most important manifestation uh, with respect to the other. Uh, there are explain, ways- explain for just a moment, Richard, for people who aren't familiar with the terminology what adverse selection is. What happens is when you're running an insurance policy, um, everybody understands that the insured knows more about his or her medical condition than does the insurance company. They have to live with it every day. And adverse selection simply means that you won't get a random draw of people to sign up. Rather, those people um, who have known bad conditions will sign up first and most eagerly, and those decisions will be a selection that is adverse to the insurance company because they're now going to have to pay an amount on those particular policies which ex- exceed the premiums that they collect for them if they have to do it on a randomized basis. So adverse selection and moral hazard, another term saying that when people are insured, they tend to take risky behaviors and otherwise, have always been the bugaboos of insurance. And if you go back to the beginning of time, starting with marine insurance, which was the first organized line of insurance, all standard policies in these industries designed to have disclosures by the insured with the greater knowledge so to make sure that the plans would not go belly up because of a combination of these two particular elements. The folks who put together Obamacare thought that civic duty was the most important element and that these kinds of strategic or opportunist behaviors would not take place. They were wrong about that, which is why the plan started to fail. And now what happens is one of these very attractive features that you're talking about, namely covering pre-existing conditions, unless you have some mechanism to control against adverse selection, um, um, this will continue to be a very, very serious problem. In private markets, um, uh, there are ways to deal with this. About 20 years ago, John Cochran here now at Hoover and then at Chicago and I independently wrote the same kind of article, which basically said if you could have contracts between employers, the current employer who has a high-risk patient can agree to pay some sum of money to a new employer to cover the residual risk. You'd get the improvements from gain to labor, and you would not have the new employer saddled with a loss, which would otherwise make him unwilling to take that. And so one of the reforms that you can make in this area is to allow these kinds of assignment contracts to be fully enforceable. So it's like everything else. What seems to be a good idea turns out almost invariably to be a fairly complicated one. 
So before we get too far into what Republicans should do next, let's talk about damage control because even the steadfast opponents of this law will concede that this, this is a bit of a time bomb and that you've got to be able to cut the right wires in the right sequence. So what, what are some of the pitfalls that the GOP really needs to avoid to keep from roiling the insurance markets? Well, I mean, first of all, what happens is you have many people who are in the middle of coverages. So what you do is you had an accident which took place, say, on December 1st of last year. You're getting extensive treatment for it. Um, now it turns out the treatment's going to take a year to run, and we cut the program out in February. Uh, do we decide to carry forward the existing coverages? If so, do we make any adjustments in the premiums to the companies if they're carrying these things at a loss? Uh, do we allow current policies to run out? What do we do with guarantees? renewal under existing policies. Transitions are extremely complicated to organize because the contracts that you're going to see today in part are made more complicated to respond to the existing regulatory environment, which means that they're less agile when it comes to responding to the change in regulatory environment. And what this does is it counsels you when you're trying to go from one complicated system to try to go to one which is relatively simple that doesn't involve another set of bureaucratic imperatives of one kind or another. My long-term favorite on this, which I think is easier to transition to, which is now in place, is the Healthy Indiana Plan, which essentially gives cash supplements for people to buy policies, but doesn't dictate the particular terms and conditions of the policies that they ought to buy. And this has been a terrible problem under this existence, because what we do is we define these sort of minimum essential benefits so high uh, that what you're doing is you're forcing people to buy things that they don't want. Once they're forced to buy them, then the policies become much less attractive. And so a lot of people, notwithstanding the penalties, choose to stay completely out of the system. And those people who are in the system are very unhappy with the mix that they have to face. And so one of the ways in which you could try to deal with this particular problem is in the revision, repeal, whatever you wish to call it of Obamacare, is to start putting in provisions of the sort which say, we do not mandate coverages in any plan which are not found anywhere in any volume voluntary plan, the theory being if no voluntary plan has it, it's just not worth the money that it's cost. But this is going to require a huge kinds of change. And so you have Mr. Trump and, you know, not without credibility saying, look, I want you to repeal today. Uh, but I don't want the repeal to go into effect tomorrow. I want it to go to effect six months. And in those six months, you guys come across with something uh, which is a replacement program. And his argument on that, which is respectable, is if you don't drop the bomb today, in the next six months, you'll do nothing. If, in fact, everybody now knows they're negotiating with a gun at their back, you're more likely to come up with a simpler plan that will work than you will if you put off the re the repeal part until the replacement part is done. If, on the other hand, you put together the repeal and you do try to make it uh, immediate, uh, it's going to be an amazing sense of dislocation. There's a general philosophical term that lawyers like to use called the reliance interest, and it means that you have a bad system on which people have currently relied. That interest is strong, even if the underlying program is one which is uh, not particularly supported on its independent merits. You want to get rid of it, but it turns out it's very costly to undo that reliance interest. All right. So there there are a lot of various reform plans out there and have been for several years. I'm not going to ask you to audit each one, but 
are there a few essential things that any healthcare reform effort would have to get right in order to declare it a success? Well, I think the first thing that you have to do to make any one of these plans correct is to reverse the tendency that's taken place under Obamacare, which is to heavy monopolistic kinds of practices. There's a kind of a basic theorem in regulation uh, that generally speaking, if there are heavy regulatory compliance burdens, large companies which could spread those costs out over many, many subscribers have a systematic advantage over small companies. This tends to lead to a greater concentration within the industry than And if, in fact, what you do is you start to remove the current regulatory apparatus, what will happen is you'll still have the concentration in the industry, which will hurt the competition uh, that you would want to create amongst different insurers. Now, I think the best way in which to do that is to undo one of the compromises that was made. It was a Faustian bargain, in my view, by the Obama administration, which it said is, look, what we're going to do is going to keep the barriers up against interstate competition so that we can get the insurance companies to go along with this particular program by giving them more of a monopoly position. I think that has to be reversed, and what you have to do is to allow companies everywhere uh, to compete anywhere. If you look right now at the situation... The concentration problem is so serious that there are many states which have at most one or two private providers in them. Some states or counties have only one. It's also clear that the sort of informal mutual funds or programs that were going to be put into place at the state level, most most of them have gone bankrupt because they cannot deal with the compliance costs and the adverse selection issues. And only if you have a more comprehensive national market will you have a chance of getting this thing right. And The other things I think that you have to do is to get rid of the current system, which essentially is a price approval system, not always described like that, but you put forward a set of prices, and then the state commissions start to decide whether or not these are excessive, then the federal government could override them, then the states could modify it, then the federal government could come back again. It's extremely complicated, and what you do is you have to essentially allow competitive prices to stand without substantive over-review on the part of the government. And it's this kind of thing that the Indiana plan, pioneered by Mitch Daniels some years ago, sort of specializes in. If plan is now in place, it seems to have worked pretty well. You can jiggle with the way in which it deals with catastrophic insurance or the amount of the initial deductibles that it have. Uh, but those are second order questions. The important thing is you don't want to put into place a plan which is every bit as sclerotic, every bit as monopolistic, every bit as subject to government control as the one that you replaced, because what will happen then is you'll get a new set of characters um, who will do the same bad deeds that the current set of characters have done, and you can't replicate those mistakes. The ideal in healthcare is to try to get more competitive supply of services. It's not to try to move to monopoly like single-payer type situations on the grounds that the government somehow or other can set prices and determine terms if it's the only player in the town. This is the old Hayekian insight. Nobody at the center has enough administrative knowledge to decide exactly what the optimal coverage plans are and what the optimal private 
pricing plans are. If you've got competition, people will start to compete on coverage and you'll decide that you get what you want and you don't get. Let me just give you one example. What the Obamacare does is it lards you with very heavy coverages on all sorts of things that you don't want. So now what do you get? You get two things that nobody wants. One is extremely high deductibles, which people find very unnerving, particularly if they have limited means. And then there's a radical restriction on the choice of doctors that you could have who are going to count as implant. Most people, in effect, would probably have coverage which is a little bit lighter in terms of what it provides against, but smaller deductibles, at least under some circumstances, and greater choices of physicians. You can't regulate everything and keep the business in the market, and what the Obamacare system did was to regulate on the wrong features, resulting in adaptations which have made these programs systematically undesirable. All right, Richard, so the final question that I'll put to you, let me just sort of take this back to first principles for a moment, and let's just put the present debate off to one side. You're a classical liberal, someone who believes in few and well-defined roles for government, especially the federal government. If we're building the system from scratch, how much of a role should the federal government, and for that matter, government at any level, have in shaping American health care? Look, uh, this is a question which depends on two issues. One is the distributive issue and the other is the allocative issue. On the distributive issue, there is just an enormous political sentiment in this country in favor of trying to make sure that sufficient means are available to provide everybody in this system with some minimum level of health care, whether it be done by um, insurance or some other kind of supplement. I don't think there's any way in which you could ignore those particular pressures. The way is, what's the best way to solve them. I think in many ways the first thing you want to do on this particular question is to remove restraints on the current forms of practice. And that means having more city MDs and other kinds of plans opened up to people so that the default system is no longer going to provide routine health care through hospital emergency rooms where enormously expected. So the first thing you want to do is to liberalize the market. Then what you want to do is to figure out how many people are going to still be short and the answer is some. And for those, what you want to do is to probably make a matching grant, which will give them coverage up to some certain level, which is the strategy which is done in the Indiana plan. And it seems to work pretty well. For everything else, in terms of what's going on, the Obama administration has made a mistake. You have to worry about adverse selection. You have to worry about moral hazards. You cannot put an arbitrary cap, as the current law does, on administrative expenses, because ironically, those expenses, in fact, are fully needed in a rational market, because employers and health insurance companies always are trying to figure out how to make sure that the last dollar spent on any one portion of their business is equal in value to the last dollar spent in any other. And the moment you say, oh, you have to cap administrative expenses at 15%, it means you're going to go insufficient on patient education, insufficient on fraud control, insufficient on marketing and all the other stuff uh, that has essentially bothered these particular plans since their inception. So uh, deliberalization coupled with a modest subsidy, I think, is the way to go. And for the rest of it, you follow the price discovery method that's associated with decentralized hierarchy and logic. Healthcare is much more difficult than most other markets. Um, It's very difficult to judge quality in advance and so forth. Uh, But when you recognize that it's more difficult, it doesn't mean that there's a bigger place for government. Uh, The argument about difficulty covers to both sides of the arrangement. If it's more difficult for private firms to figure out how to organize and price these services, it's also more difficult for government agencies to price and to supply these particular services. 
So you always have to ask the position of where's the comparative advantage. And except for the things that I mentioned, deregulation, which is always a wise move on the one hand, and the modest subsidies on the other, I don't see the advantage that's coming out of government people. This is the old Chicago versus Cambridge fight. I'm at Hoover today, not at Chicago. I've never been at Cambridge. But I still believe that to the extent that you're dealing with health care, you want to apply the general principles of social organization that seem to work equally well in every other area of human endeavor. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember that you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian, and you can find it at definingideas at hoover.org. You can also follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.